0: A1 Good Investing is not qualified to give financial advice. No part of this episode should be taken as advice. The content of A1 Good Investing is information and opinions. Information, including financial data and derived figures, may be inaccurate. Anyone investing in the share market should research potential investments to the best of their ability and only invest money that is not needed for the ongoing support of themselves or others. Hello and welcome to episode four of the A1 Good Investing channel. Today is the second of the Malaysia episodes, and it is going to be on Bursa Malaysia and the Malaysian stock market. Um, You can see my website on the screen is a1goodinvesting.wordpress.com, and my name is Gregory Peck. So, last episode was more of an intro to did uh, property development as the first uh, industry, and that was the stock United Overseas Australia listed on the ASX. This episode, we're gonna look at Bursa Malaysia, which is listed on Bursa Malaysia, on the Malaysian exchange. Um, And so we will look at both the company and the stock exchange of Malaysia, which is quite good because then we can just talk about all the different things in that stock market, and how they're different to Australia. Um, it's it, As per our kind of idea to, to tap into the Malaysian growth economy or the growth in the Malaysian economy, um, Bursa Malaysia just provides really excellent exposure to that economy. It's, it's really, really heavily influenced by the economy and it's quite a high quality company. Um, the downside is somewhat protected by just the fact that they're quite well run and well supported and there's not too much a threat from competitors. So I'll just give you a quick intro on um, Bursa Malaysia, and then we'll look at their industry, the stock exchange. Um, we'll look at their management, capital allocation, quality of earnings, and evaluation. Right now, it is the it is January of 2022. Bursa's market cap is five billion ringgit, and they're in the financial services industry. Um, so it's immediately linked to that economic performance that we are, we're hoping to see in Malaysia. They are a monopoly, so they're the only game in town. They're the only viable large stock market um, in Malaysia. They're heavily regulated by the Securities Commission Malaysia, and most of their profit um, goes to shareholders through dividends. So they yeah, they don't really um, – you kind of have to look at them a little bit differently in that way because of those things all right so an overview of stock exchanges as an industry so as we say when the economy strengthens and there's more money in people's bank accounts and they're earning more money the need to manage that money becomes obviously in in more demand so banks insurers um, and investing and the stock exchange as a result all become in higher demand more activity more common. Now, the stock exchange also um, can go, as well as um, other financial services like banks, their, their activities can go back the other way and contribute to the development of the economy. Um, in the case of Bursa Malaysia, it, it only can occur up to a certain point. So they aim to do as much as possible and provide the best um, stock exchange possible, but they can't aggressively attract investi- investors. Um, they can't, like, it, it doesn't. Work to do that. The economy has to grow organically, and they just have to facilitate that growth and and do as much as they can to encourage participation. But they just can't do much beyond a certain point. Um, if the stock market was you know running aggressive ads and getting people to invest in an economy above what would be correct for the balance at, at that time, you'd have poor results. So that's partly why they're regulated heavily as well. The customers of Bursa Malaysia are traders, they're the people that make trades on the stock exchange and exchange stocks. Um, Most of their income comes from fees associated with that trading. Um, Retail traders are a small minority by volume of those total trades, so usually uh, they're about 20% of the market, and in uh, last year, 2020, um, they were 30% because there was a massive spike in participation. Um, in more developed n- countries, the it's similar. I think in Australia and the US, it's still around twenty percent retail. The rest is institutional and foreign institutional or, or foreign participation. So yeah, that th- that thirty percent that they had last year it was actually quite high, and I think it probably would have even been higher than the spike seen in countries like the US. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk more about retail traders because that's where you see more interesting differences. Um, They're only a minority, but they have a very big effect. Um, But we will also briefly touch on um, institutional investors and the effects that they have. But yeah, retail retail traders can have a big impact on daily prices, right? Um, And the... They can contribute to big price swings. Remember, they can do they can make trades, and it'll come up on the ledger. But it it the volume might be quite small, so it's not a ma- it's not a big deal. But it makes the price swing quite wildly, and so you can see on Bursa Malaysia, you will get swings of twenty percent on some stocks in a single day, or like you get just just massive drops and 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 hikes, and and you it's really a, a big difference to what we see in Australia and the US. Um you kind of have to get used to seeing your stock. Uh this is Bursa Malaysia in this chart here. And it's a five billion dollar company but you get regular three, four and five percent swings and hikes. It's it's just all it's and, and that kind of happens because the it gets amplified by these small volume retail trades. Um so any it can happen on no news at all. It can just happen because of uh, activities that happen within retail, the retail traders. But it can also happen um, because if, maybe if an institution um, makes a move, that'll get posted and retail traders will act on that and just magnify that move. And the same thing with news. They're very sensitive to pieces of news and it gets interpreted and acted on very rapidly. So the issue with this. Is that it drives volatility and w- volatility does not equal risk but people still act as though it does so so that volatility tends to drive away potential market participants because they're scared of how volatile the price is when in actual fact the underlying businesses and the risk of those businesses going bust is is not not coral that's not the same as the as volatility so anyway um retail traders they okay so we'll distinguish first between um because okay i've seen from what i've seen in observing malaysia so far in the market is that i'm um, sorry my exposure is through a website called i3 investing and twitter generally uh, um, that's where i see the most activity like this they might be really bad places to be looking but I haven't found found a better place. So if anyone knows of a better place, let me know. Um, They tend, retail traders tend to engage in slightly less, slightly more unhealthy styles of trading in Malaysia than they do in Australia and the US, even though this happens everywhere for sure. So what unhealthy trading is, is it's akin to gambling in a way. It tends to be short term. It might be based more on technical analysis. It's, it's like this glamorous idea of like, oh, I'm su- I'm a hardcore day trader and like all of this. Um, so it's also a little bit easier, I think, because you can just kind of make interpretations based on the chart and say, oh, like I'm 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 doing something that requires this talent, and and, and I don't have to explain why. I don't know. Sorry, I'm going into this too much. Anyway. Um, Even though the volume uh, occupied by these these kinds of traders is small, the volatility that it creates makes the market unattractive. And also this this style of more unhealthy trading, um, it doesn't fulfill the ultimate goal of the stock market, which is to promote good companies and promote a good economy and just have people investing in things that are providing value to society. It's not about that. It's just about looking at the picture and trying to make money and and yeah, kind of those kind of things. So anyway, in, in contrast to that, I would just say that healthy trading is that more fundamental um, based on companies that contribute value to society uh, and like studying the fundamentals and the intrinsic value of the company. And when you have that, you obviously you can hold through a lot more of that volatility. You tend not to contribute to the volatility. And you're just investing with a lot more confidence and doing it in a way that fulfills the purpose of the stock market. But that's a big debate and no, I don't I, I truly don't really. Um yeah, anyways. Okay, so why 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 do they have a higher contingent of more unhealthy style retail trading in Malaysia? So first off it's because The country is very young in its current form. It's only 60 years old. It's developed incredibly rapidly and it's progressed in this way while being treated poorly and exploited by other um, countries and colonialists, basically. Like the, the, the activities and what Malaysia has had to go through have made things worse. But despite all this, they're in a really good place and it's just very natural for the market to be... The way it is and for traders to be the way it is at this stage of their development so that's that's really the reason that there's a lot of this unhealthy trading behavior but to look at some of the more specific reasons within this i've got a little list here so uh, the first reason is lack of education so the idea the ideas behind fundamental analysis and knowing knowing that it's the best and why it's the best and it, it Effectively, it's, it's the easiest and most efficient way to invest and it's healthy for yourself. You stress a lot less and it's healthy for the o- economies because you're investing in good companies. But there's not enough. There's not a lot of education around this. Instead, people get kind of poor in poor education through social media. You have a lot of kind of self-serving, um, get rich quick, pump and dump, like t- technical analysis. Um, gurus on YouTube and and all that that are saying hey like look at this way to make lots of money in a short period of time and the issue with this is it tends to be a little bit self-fulfilling if a lot of people are participating in in that for example if, if everyone sees like a cup and handle developing and then makes a trade based on that or if lots of people participate in a kind of pump and dump style thing it has results and that can lead to it appearing worthwhile so it perpetuates it so yeah that's the first reason perhaps there's a lack of education second reason um, risk aversion due to financial stress so individuals in developing economies like malaysia may be more materially impacted by losing money there's less of a social welfare system they have lower savings on average they earn lower wages on average so losses in trading are inevitably going to be scarier and it's going to be harder to hold through volatility so people are more apt to just sell um and exacerbate volatility but they're also more likely to fall for these um the the people that are selling them get rich quick scams because they because they're, they're just more willing to take risks that's a that's another theory so third third reason um is regulatory differences mainly in the form of the capital gains tax. So in Malaysia, and this this may not have the impact that it sounds like it does because it's very complex and we don't we don't know exactly how things are going to pan out. But the theory is that because the, there's no capital gains tax on um, trading, there's no incentive for long-term holding. Like in Australia, we get a lower tax for holding over a one-year period. It doesn't exist in Malaysia. It might... Uh, not incentivize them to to do long-term more healthy trading um it they do have a capital gains tax on property and it was implemented exactly for that reason to uh what like you i'm not sure how if you keep going to say the effects of that were significantly good but i think generally they they think that the effects of that were pretty good because it correlated at least may not have caused but it definitely co- co- correlated to the market cooling off all right. And the last reason I've got here is a lack of interesting companies. So most of the index is oil and gas and plantations um, and other boring banks and stuff like that. So when you compare that to the US where you've got Google, Microsoft, Apple, all these massive, really interesting companies, the, in- the, the level of interest that you can generate in fundamental analysis and learning about companies becomes a bit more difficult. Um, another thing is that the the major the oil and gas and the plantations they have a perceived ESG risk. Now I'm not I'm not in the camp that sees that as something you should avoid but I understand why people do think they should avoid those things due to ESG and that could play a part in why Malaysians don't uh, they are less likely to become interested in their stock market and the companies in that stock market. So yeah, the fundamental research becomes less less interesting than the more glamorous styles of, of day trading and, and technical analysis trading. They did have a couple of interesting companies. So like Grab was a really cool company, but it listed on the Nasdaq, I think. Um Air Asia strikes me as the, the coolest company on on the on Bursa Malaysia. And it's it's in real trouble right now. Like it it had any anyone who invested in, in the last Few years is um, finding themselves in a little bit of trouble so yeah resolving these issues will take time and it will take just organic economic development I don't think it's about changing these individual things I think it's just about letting things unfold as they do in the economy um, so yeah a lot of the a lot of them are also interconnected that's why it can evolve organically so if if people are more educated, and they find they end up earning more money because they have higher education. And more money means there's it's easier to be an entrepreneur and start new businesses. And then you get the more interesting companies. So all the all these things feed into each other. And and yeah, that's it's a um it's a natural progression. So that's retail traders in Malaysia and kind of a, a few things about how they work. Okay, so institutional investors their their activity is kind of more more linked to economic performance of other asset classes like property and global equities and bonds and interest rates in the us and this and that so it tends to be more stable day-to-day it doesn't jump around as much but it's also kind of like a tide it's it's out of control it's out of the control of bursa malaysia and it's out of the control of me and I don't actually fully understand it so I kind of view the the way that institutional investors interact with Bursa Malaysia as it's an inherent inherent risk that things in other other countries can impact the way that the um, institu- institutions are investing but it's not something that I can do anything about and in the end it kind of as long as the nation is progressing economically the institutions will participate that's kind of how I view it Alright, so profitability. So revenue in in stock exchanges comes through fees for those um exchanges, the exchange of shares. It also comes through other services that they provide to traders and businesses and it comes through their their temporary uh action as a depository where people where money ends up being within the exchange for a short period of time during trading activities. But that's not really a big contributor. It's mostly um yeah securities and derivatives trading fees and through their listing of new companies um so yeah rather uh, profits are very high overall um because they are a dominant monopoly um they are curbed a little bit by the regulatory frameworks but the regulators do they want them to earn more profit when there's more healthy lots of liquidity and and activity going on so the more activity the better the economy, the more money they make. Um, they, rather than being aggressive about marketing or even profit optimization, the best thing that these exchanges can do is to try and strength, strengthen the economy. So we'll, we'll talk about more about how they do that. But yeah, in terms, just for profitability for stock exchanges, the most important thing for them to, to do is to provide a good service to the public as a stock exchange and encourage healthy trading that, it, that improves the economy pretty much. All right, so Bursa Malaysia, the company. So this is outside their headquarters. You can see the bull and the bear statue. Um, Bursa Malaysia is a very high quality company and their service as a stock exchange is as good as any other in the world. Um and in fact they're pretty much modelled off some of the most um the the largest and best stock markets in the world. All right, so their management. Um average age is a little bit young, which is good. Like it's not that a lot of Malaysian companies have seventy or eighty year olds as the as the median age or the average age. So yeah, they're a good age. Um their tenure, sorry, they they have very high quality experience and education. Um people Directors have been to Harvard, NSU, Cambridge. They have experience at companies such as Hong Leong Bank, um, government experience, just all of the highest quality companies um, in Malaysia. And they have quite short tenures. Um, and this hap- this is kind of because management are recu- recruited as more stewards than, than like uh, to drive the company forward. So they have, they, they have these short tenures in which they contribute the, their, their vast expertise. Um, and this re- revolving set of managers, you just get more very high quality experience um, and expertise being driven into the company. Um, and they just, they just tend to guide the company and make sure it's going in, in the right direction um, over time. They are very diverse, both ethnically and in terms of gender, there's a good mix. Um, they're most of them except for one of the uh, Directors are listed as independent and they have very low levels of shareholding or no shareholding So they're just that far more objective um, Style where they're just yeah periodically lending their expertise to drive the company in the right way without necessarily driving for profits um, Key management on the other hand are more incentivized. They have a share grants program, which um, pays them in shares and they're, they're incentivized far more in order to um, to create profits. but yeah the, the directors are more as as they would be in a public service com- um, or a utility, I suppose. All right um, And the CEO, uh, Datuk Mohammed Umar Swift, is an Australian fellow, which is interesting. All uh, right management strategy. All right, so Bursa Malaysia's strategy. So Bursa Malaysia communicate their strategy, or they communicate several different strategies in several different ways in their 266 page annual report Uh, for comparison. Microsoft's report in 2021 was 116 pages. And it's interesting because they are a role model and it might explain why a lot of the companies in Malaysia, have these massive reports that you just get some really, really big ones. Um, Lots of information doesn't necessarily mean better information. And in fact, too much information can make it worse. So maybe they can institute like a word count or something to help with that. But as of Bursa Malaysia, their priorities are a little bit unclear, but they basically um, encourage accessibility, participation and education around investing um, as some of their major goals. So some of the ways that they do this is, first and foremost, requiring transparent reporting. So yeah, this is good. It gives investors the confidence to invest and allows them access to all that information. They can analyze businesses. Um, Some businesses have complained about this because um, it takes time and money to put these reports together. Um, And it can impact their bottom line if it's a small company and they're spending all this money to um to to make their reporting standards of the, of the right amount but the in larger companies when they're complaining about this kind of thing it may more be out of fear of people seeing the negative things about their company because if in the past all the negative things have been hidden and companies weren't as transparent then it makes it, it makes a bigger impact if one company goes out and reveals all of its its negative things So it really is Bursa Malaysia's job to keep working to create a culture where reporting is completely transparent and it's okay to have negative things in the report, make the reports a little bit shorter and just just communicate the best things. But yeah, that's something that'll develop over time. All right, and some other ways that Bursa improve the stock exchange, they work hard to make the experience um, as seamless and easy as possible. They, they act as a role model and provide a bit of a template for other companies. Um, they are constantly working on their online capabilities. So they had a new app come out recently, uh, which is very, very helpful in, in allowing people who want to trade on mobile, which is an increasing number of people, especially in these countries where people are going from having no computer to having a mobile phone. So having that mobile app's a really good step. Um, they have lots of education initiatives something called Bursa Academy, which just teaches um, retail traders about about investing. They, they write lots and lots of analyst reports on small and medium companies that aren't covered, just providing more and more information to the public. Um, some of the more unique things they do, unique to Malaysia, is they have a strong emphasis on Islamic markets. So they have the best Islamic They won the award, sorry, for the best exchange for Islamic listings in the world. And they also have quite unique palm oil derivatives. All right, so we'll talk about that a little bit more in quality of earnings. All right, so quality of earnings. The quality of earnings is, in general, very high. They have enormous margins um, and they're effectively a monopoly, but they do have... Lots of regulatory guidance or oversight, and they are incredibly reliant on external economic forces. So most of their revenue comes through um, securities trading, equities trading, and on that revenue they earn between a seventy and an eighty percent operating margin. Um, their margin is higher with more trading and more liquidity, due to um the fact that they probably have overheads that get covered after a certain point and employees are probably more efficient as, you, as they deal with more trades. Um, this fact, the fact that they earn more money with uh, higher levels of liquidity is probably in line with what the regulators want because that just means a healthier market. So they get rewarded for having that healthier market. Um, new trader participation is, is kind of on a very slight upward trend but there was a massive spike in that 2020 year um part of their securities trading and what makes them a little bit unique is their that Islamic finance so Islamic finance um is it's a key part of their business and it's part of these securities fees that we're talking about it's embedded in these in this um majority of their revenue but what Islamic finance is is it is finance that occurs under and compliantly with Sharia law. Um, In general, Sharia law and Islamic finance promotes high high level of value to society. It's about equally sharing risks and there's compulsory charity donations in there and they try and avoid societally harmful businesses. So the downside of of, um, Islamic finance is that there's a lot of fees or not uh, yeah you it costs a lot to have your business scrutinized by experts in sharia law so there's it just costs a little bit but on the other hand yeah it's it's quite um, a positive thing for society um this this islamic finance revenue in overall they're losing their it's kind of contracting but specifically with um revenue from the middle east and saudi arabia that's a growth, um, that's growing. So that's a part of their earnings that is showing a little bit of growth. Um, in terms of their derivatives, this smaller um, derivatives revenue contribution, they earn a mere 45 to 50% profit margin on that. Profit is is volume dependent, but it's also dependent on how the premiums are set up. And in riskier environments, they're generally earning a higher profit margin. People are hedging more um, and they're willing to pay a higher premium when when you have higher levels of risk. It's also a more more of a steady income stream because it's all institutions that are less um, skittish than retail traders. Bursa have special uh, derivatives in palm oil. They have obviously very strong local knowledge and lots of contact with the industry. So they've set up the best best palm oil derivatives in the world, and they're denominated in U.S. dollars. So that's a, that's another kind of growthy way for them to attract a lot of business from foreigners and 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 uh, provide something special, I suppose, to to the to the public. All right. So, as I say, derivatives overall less profitable, profitable but provide more stable income. Um, apart from uh, securities and derivatives, they have two other little income streams, which is market data, which is just providing their live prices and everything to other uh, platforms. And that's a pretty good um, income stream for them. It's growing healthily, obviously, as you can imagine, more and more investing platforms are coming online and they're seeing a demand for that data. Um, and also, yeah, that, those new listings. So right now, they get 15 to 25 new listings a year in their small, sophisticated markets, where they're high risk and they're only for institutional investors. Um, and they're only really getting a handful of new listings on their main market. So, yeah, it's pretty flat. And that probably won't develop until the economy starts to show real signs of development. But we'll see. Um, so, yeah. Earnings and security. Uh, sorry, earnings consist mostly of securities trading. And-, and that's very dependent on the external economy. But they do have those other segments that are more reliable. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the costs, Same, pretty much the same costs associated with all of their segments and it's predominantly labour and information technology costs. Um, their labour cost may come down, they don't really talk about this that much, but they do invest in digitisation in and automation, so that labour cost may come down. It's probably the only lever they've got to pull in terms of that. Um, and they're not likely to need too many more, more substantial higher costs in the future. They don't. I don't think they're ever going to need to um, create a new office or anything. They can run everything out of that. It's, it's basically a software business, you know. Um, in terms of competition, yes, they have a monopoly. But as we know, financial technology is rapidly changing. Um, Bursa Malaysia are pretty on top of it, I suppose. They are researching blockchain and AI initiatives um and they do tend to go above and beyond in the services they provide to the public their app's pretty good i can't use it because i'm not a malaysian passport holding citizen i don't have a bank account there but i think the app's pretty good and it's 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 a step up from a lot of what we have in australia and and i think that they they do as good a job as they can on warding off competition and obviously those regulatory barriers really do prevent anyone from stepping into their shoes but on the other hand, they do ensure that they'll never earn too much. Uh, looking at past past profitability, they earn between thirty and forty percent most years, um, and on a, in a great year uh, in some of the recent years, they earn closer to uh, forty and fifty percent. So if they're allowed to earn that much, what we hope happens is that the economy develops m- develops well, and Bursa and Malaysia are basically earning more of those 50, uh, 40 or 50% net margin years. But yeah, in terms of a summary of their quality of earnings, they do very well, very reliable going forward, enormous margins, low competition. Um, They are, on the other hand, susceptible to regulatory changes um, and the economic environment. Okay, let's talk about capital allocation which is yeah they, they basically just pay massive dividends. So they um, pay out 75 to 90% of their profit as dividends. The yield has been between 3.14 and 6.41% in the past five years. And <clears throat> while, while we may prefer that they're driving that cash back into the business, because of the nature of the business, they can't really do that. Beyond a certain point, they're just a facilitator. So as we said, they can't aggressively market to customers. They're just very dependent on external activities. And the, and any, any growth should occur in the form of just organic, unforced growth. Um, plus, I guess, regulators might prohibit them from driving too much into the business and, and, and earning too much money. So there's that to consider as well. But yeah, they have relatively small capital um, allocation into their core capacity. But what they do put into that is basically into IT um, or automation and minor property upgrades. But yeah, as I said, they, that automation and, and reducing labor, they really don't talk about it, but I think they are going after it just to bring down that, that cost associated with most of their activities. Um, and it's probably the biggest, yeah, as I say, the biggest lever they can pull in terms of profit Um, One of the biggest spends recently was developing that, that Bursa Anywhere mobile app. So, yeah, their capital allocation activities have resulted in mm, usually 20 to 25% return on equity, with an outlier 2020 returning 45%. Um, they have no significant debt. They have a very strong balance sheet. When you take out their trade liabilities and the reserves held for those trade liabilities, you end up with a net $900 million, which is quite strong. They have minimal dilution. So they have had a, a share grant pro- program for employees, which is just about to be renewed. But that costs 10 million shares in the last eight years. So bringing that count from $800 million to $810 million, so quite minimal dilution and it's for the purpose of incentivizing key management. All right, next is valuation. So valuation in net assets, as we just said, they have about $900 million worth of uh, quite reliable cash and stuff in the business um, versus a $5 billion market cap. I keep saying dollars, I, I mean um, Malaysian ring it, sorry they the but yeah that doesn't provide too much um net asset backing um their pe is usually 20 but right now it is 14 it may indicate that it's a good time to buy but i think that has happened in response to having firstly a slow economy and secondly some worries about some things that we'll talk about in the, in a second but the company is most likely valued on this dividend discount model. So when you plug in their um, their their average results recently, you pretty much get their current price. Um, and I guess that's just an indicator that the current price is reasonable based on value in the company on the future dividends that they are probably inevitably going to pay out. Um, so yeah what what this price model is influenced by is how much they pay out in terms of dividends so yeah they do 90 percent yeah maybe lower would be better but they can't they they can't they can't grow that much i mean yeah return on equity is another factor in this dividend discount model Um, the risk free rate is another factor and then the market risk premium so they all get put together to come up with your your share price but um, importantly, if the Malaysian economy performs well, two of these factors go up. The market risk premium gets lower and the return on equity of the business gets higher. So you get a good a good um, kick on from well-performing economy. And on the other hand, you get punished quite severely if the economy is not performing well. Um, the biggest risk right now is the that market risk premium and U.S. interest rates right now. Uh, If the risk-free rate and those U.S. interest rates go up, then it can lead to people pulling a lot of money, especially institutions, out of the Malaysian economy. So therefore, um, you get the market risk premium going up and you get the return on equity going down. So yeah, they are linked to those U.S. interest rates and the risk-free rate. Um, But yeah, in general, the takeaway is that Bursa Malaysia is kind of a bit of an accentuated bet on the Malaysian economy. Um, but given this company's current position, they're at a pretty good price. They're a very high quality company. I like them and they're yeah, they're the price it's fine to pay this price right now, I think. And if you yeah, if you're looking for in like exposure to that met Malaysian economy, it's just such a no-brainer. they yeah. So yeah, that's about it. Um if you, if you want to read what I've written in the reports, check out my website, a1goodinvesting.wordpress.com. Basically, just says what I went through there. I wrote a report on the company itself and on the stock market industry. Um, I hope you learned something today. That was a discussion of the Malaysian stock market and Bursa Malaysia. Thank you.